Amen. We give God thanks for the gift of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is drawn near to us with gentleness, with kindness. I'm going to say something to the men just now. If the only image of Jesus is some sort of street fighter Jesus, then you do not have a well-rounded picture of Jesus. Jesus was strong. Jesus was fearless. He was courageous. He had His face set like flint to the cross. But He was that way because He was gentle and kind. And He loves His people. And He wanted to give His life for us so that we by believing in Him might have life in His name. Let's go to Him in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank You for Jesus, Eternal Son. We thank You for Your sacrifice. Holy Spirit, we thank You for Your anointing. Great triune God, we thank You that You have loved us and given so lavishly and abundantly of Yourself that we by believing might have life in You. Help us, Lord, as we turn to Your Word. Be with us, teach us, train us, rebuke us, correct us, instruct us, train us in righteousness, equip us for every good work. In Jesus' name. Amen. A man with a tendency to always find something wrong with church life, especially, weirdly, in seasons of blessing and encouragement, approached the pastor and said, I am not coming to church anymore. No, I'm not talking about anyone in particular. Uh, pastors have had that conversation for millennia with millions of brothers and sisters over the years. It's not a new conversation. I'm not coming to church anymore. The pastor asked why. The church is not a show that you come to. It's a body that you belong to. You can't just walk out like that. The man replied, I saw a woman talking badly to another woman. Some of the young men seem a bit immature. Always messing about when there's serious stuff going on. There was a person sat next to me who stank. That woman's phone kept going off during the service. A baby wouldn't be quiet. Children were messing about. I don't know about the parents, what they were doing. Several people came late. The list went on and on and on. The pastor tried to reason with the man. He started with protest. It's a natural human instinct, protest, before he gets his act together. He says what he really wants to say. Trust me, I, I know. I'm at the front, and I have, to, I have to put up with this sort of stuff more than anyone else. I've preached, I've taught, I've spoken one-to-one, -one, I've held counseling sessions. I've pulled that person aside, and I've had a word with them many times. I've been patient. I've been gentle and kind, like we just sang. And I've been the other thing. I'm aware of the situations that you've described. I've tried to address them again and again and again, and I feel that sometimes I'm a hair's breadth away from a breakdown because people just don't get it. But at the end of the day, I can't control people. I could walk away, but I don't. I could dump this congregation like that, but I choose not to. 
maybe rethink your choice. Well, <clears throat> compelling and moving though his protest might be to another pastor, it didn't have quite the intended effect on the congregant. Did it work? So he tried instead to plea with the man. Some of you maybe have been in these conversations, I don't know, but where, where um, uh, the, the pastor moves from protest to pleading with you and seeing, okay, how, how can you be edifying in this situation? Have you spoken with them? Not that the pastor always actually wants you to do that, but it's the next step. Have you spoken with the person? Jesus said, speak with the person and try and work it out peacefully amongst yourselves. Um, didn't meet the desired result. I, I, really, though, I, the Bible tells you how to do this. Surely you can without being unpleasant or unkind. Didn't work. So the pastor tried instead preaching to the man. I'm done protesting. I'm, I'm, I'm done pleading with you. Now I, I, I have a story to tell you. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One man stood with his head down, beating his chest, and the other stood far off from um, and, and looking down on everyone else with his hands outstretched to heaven and his eyes upwards. And he said, Thank you, God, that I'm not like other sinners. Thank you that I'm not like that tax collector over there. And that man standing on his own beat his chest and cried and said, Be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which of those two men went home justified? That is, which of those two men went home righteous before God? The man who found his righteousness in himself or the man who realized he had no righteousness in himself, only that which God supplies? Uh, the preacher is preaching and um, uh, the guy's not, it's not registering. And so, so uh, the, 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 the pastor continued and he, he said, Jesus didn't come for the righteous but for sinners. So when you get in a room of sinners, there's going to be some mess. Are you going to stop going to the hospital or to the GP because of all of the sick people? Are you going to stop going to the gym because of all of the unhealthy people? Are you going to stop going to the grocery store because of all the hungry people? So why would you stop going to the gathering of believers because of all the sinful people? Take out the log in your eye and maybe you can help better address the speck in your brother or your sister's. Well, unfortunately, compelling though that should be to the person who is obeying the Word, it didn't work. So, in a, a, a desperate effort, at the very end of all of his options, the pastor thought he would try a picture instead. Not like a photograph or a painting type of picture, but something that's acted out type of picture. And the pastor said, okay, but before you leave, do me a favor. Take a full glass of water and walk three times through the church building when there's lots of people and walk with that full glass of water without spilling a single drop on the floor. Well, the man thought that was weird, but also too easy. And so kind of to prove a point that it could be done, he went along with it. He went around three times as asked by the pastor and then defiantly, thinking the point of the message was you can't do it, presented the glass full, said examine the floor, there's no water on it, is there? And the pastor said, when you walked through the church, did you see a woman talking badly to another woman? No. Did you see the young men goofing off when there was work to be done? No. Did you smell anyone who didn't meet your standards of freshness? No. Did you get put out with that woman and her phone 
those parents and their child, those people who came in late. I didn't see or hear them. Do you know why you didn't see or hear them? Well, they weren't there. Oh, no, the pastor said. But they were. I'm the pastor. I know, because I have to. I can't avoid it. But you were focused on a glass to make sure you didn't spill water. And because your focus was elsewhere, other things were happening around you that faded into insignificance, if not total invisibility. The same thing happens to your life. When your attention is focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, who saved you from your sins for crying out loud, and saved me from mine, we don't have time to dwell on other people's mistakes. Why? Because I am all about Christ. I am for Christ. I am because of Christ. And I live for Jesus Christ. Other stuff will get sorted out. God will deal with those He has to deal with. He's dealt with me and He's dealing with me. Praise Him for His grace. Hebrews chapter 10. It's all about Christ. There's, you know, it's like we're talking about the five sole of the Reformation. It's not solas, sorry. It's sole. It's the plural in the Latin. Someone out there is like, oh, why are you using Latin? It's just history. It means alone. These are reformational principles, principles of a reformational church. We've talked about Scripture as our ultimate authority. We've talked about faith as the instrument through which we are saved. We've talked about grace as, as, as the means by which we are saved. And now we're talking about Christ. Truth be told, I would hope that every Sunday you come to Grace Baptist Church Wood Green, you would always hear about Christ. Hopefully this is nothing new. But I hope that even though this is not any new revelation, we already have it here, I pray that it is a fresh realization of the beauty and glory of God in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What are you trusting in to save you? Now, I, I, I didn't see anyone walk in with blood on their hands or on their clothes. If I did, I would first ask, are you okay? I would assume that maybe you've hurt yourself. If I realized that you were okay, 
very okay. But it was very definitely blood, and not paint, not ketchup, not some sort of tropical red-colored beverage. I'd probably be assessing, should I or should I not call the police? What atrocity has happened? Likewise, when you came here this morning, you did not anticipate, I don't think, to see me robed in um, some form of uh, fancy regalia with a, a stone table here and um, a, 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 a lamb strapped down. And, um, you know, the thing's bleating out and everything pro progresses to, to, to me hoisting the knife. And, um, you know, that's not what you came to church to see, is it? I don't think that's what, that, that, that's what we're here for. Why? You know, there, there are some religious systems today where they still sacrifice animals. There are some um, systems where people never mind harming animals or killing animals for some sort of sacrifice. They harm themselves. They whip themselves. They cut themselves. There was one um, uh, image I saw from um, a particular sect of Islam where they had strapped um, swords together and knives with a rope and they were, were flogging themselves with that. And the, the images in the paper that was reporting that were quite grotesque. It was very interesting. But we're not about that. <laughs> Similarly, some of you sin. No, all of you sin. And when you sin, you come to me, don't you? Well, some of you do. Sometimes I'm okay with it. Sometimes I'd rather you not. But um, there's a, it's not like we have a booth in the corner and you see my silhouette. And you've never seen my face. You just have a silhouette through the lattice work. And... Um, you know, you, you sit down. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. And you hear my voice. How many days since your last confession, my son? <laughs> I don't know why I took it that angle. But, um, you know, and we have a conversation. And you just tell me all of the gory details of whatever it was you did in the week. Why do we not do that? We can laugh. Why can we laugh? Isn't that a bit irreverent? Well, the Bible says that Christ suffered and died once for all. And it tells us that Christ is the only mediator between God and man. And it tells us that Jesus Christ is the one in whose name we pray and we have immediate and direct access to God the Father in the name of Jesus because Jesus died for you so you don't have to go through me. You can simply go through Jesus. If you try to come to me, all I'm going to do is tell you go through Jesus. You come here, you sing, you pray, you listen, you give, you um, um, fellowship, you participate in the various activities of church life. Why? Some of you, I don't know, maybe it's because you feel guilty about something. Maybe you're actually more active when you've done something wrong in the week. And you're trying to expunge your guilt. You're trying to get rid of it. But I, the first thing I want you to see from this passage is this. God does not need you. You need God. God does not need you. You need God. Works? No. Christ. Prayers? Prayer is good. You should pray. But you, need, you, you pray because you need Christ, not because God, God needs your prayers. This, do you think God really needs billions of people over millennia trying to talk to Him at the same time? He's very well capable of handling that. But does He need that? No. 
In fact, he could very well do without it. But you need God. And God gives freely of himself to you in Jesus Christ. James Weldon Johnson was um, a poet from the USA. He was born in Jacksonville, Florida in 1871. His mother was from the Bahamas. His father was a freeborn black American man. Johnson would embark on an illustrious career that established him as an American author, educator, lawyer, diplomat, songwriter, and civil rights activist. A very accomplished man indeed. He was appointed around the turn of the century. If you know something about various things going on in American history at the turn of Century, 1900, uh, 1800s to 1900s, that's what we're talking about. Um, it's quite significant. He was appointed by the U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt as the U.S. Consul to Venezuela and Nicaragua. He would later become an early leader of the NAACP, campaigning against lynching, segregation, and the disenfranchisement of black people in the southern USA. He was, by all accounts, a literary giant. He published anthologies of black American poems and songs that may otherwise have been lost to history, while also writing his own sociological studies and poetry. Wonderful guy, great accomplishments, fantastic um, contribution to society. One of his poems is less helpful, however. Uh, it's entitled, The Creation. Now, as with all poems, it takes creative license. I don't mind that. It takes creative license to tell the story of creation. But sometimes I think that license can go a bit too far. And the greatest of creatives can err in this way. I think that's what he did. This is, this is what he said. James Weldon Johnson on the creation. God stepped out in space. And he looked around. And he said, I'm lonely. I'll make me a world. Now later in the poem, God creates everything and surveys it, but he says, I'm lonely still. He's then depicted as somewhat puzzled. The, the poem says, Then God sat down on the side of a hill where he could think. By a deep wide river he sat down. With his head in his hands, God thought... And he thought, and he thought, till he thought, I'll make me a man. Now, for, forgive me, but, but God is not a cosmic Winnie the Pooh with the, you know, thinking, 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 indecisiveness. God is the originator of thoughts. He doesn't have to sit down and think stuff up because he's puzzled. He is wisdom, thought, reason, itself. But even more offensive than um, this divine poo in the sky, we have this lonely God. A lonely God who is not satisfied or comfortable in Himself. A God who is in fact needy, but does not know what He needs without spending a bit of time puzzling over it alone. But, but here's the truth. God is not dependent even on your belief for His existence. God does not need you. Fairies in Disney films like Tinkerbell need your affirmation to survive. Church is not us getting in a room saying, we believe, we believe, we believe, to breathe life back into the Lord. Nor is He a Santa type of character who needs our belief to succeed, to power His reindeer around the world. The forever faithful God is not waiting around for you or me to all join hands and chant affirmation. He's not waiting on you to sacrifice anything, to do anything. 
God doesn't need you. But sometimes you come to church with the attitude that God needs you. And you've made a rod for your back, and you're discouraged, and you're disheartened, and you're depressed, and you li live through the week in fear and judgment and the sense that, that I'm such a rotten person, or I've messed up this time, or oh, I did this wrong, or, or maybe it's not your issues. Maybe you're like that character I began with who, who's you know, looking at everyone else's issues. And, and, and it's because you have fooled yourself into believing that God needs all of this. Rather, we need God, which is why we have all of this. We are desperate. We are weak. Not strong. We have to gather. We have to sing. We have to pray. We have to preach. We have to listen. We don't have a choice, not because God is going to smite us down if we don't, but because we will die if we don't. Under the law, the text says, worshipers continually offered sacrifices year after year, prayerful petitions to God, accompanied by the bleating of animals, the butchery and the blood of lambs. Why? They weren't doing that because God needed that. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Rather, they were doing it because they were sinners with consciousness of their sins, and they knew they needed God to take away their sins. The, the, the tragic irony is they, they, you know, they go and they do this, and it's not enough. It actually serves only as a reminder of their sins. Oh, as they're slaughtering the animal, it's there, it's bleeding out. Look at what my sins have done. Where is their hope? Year after year, rivers of blood, seas of oil. Why? Because they know they're sinners, they're conscious of their sin, they need God to deal with it. But it's impossible for the blood of sacrifices of animals to take away sins. We need God to take away our sins. And He could quite easily be rid of us. But the good news is that He has chosen rather to redeem us. God does not need you. You need God. Secondly, God does not need your sacrifices for sin. He has already received Christ's sacrifice. I'll say, say that one more time. God does not need your sacrifices for sin. He has already received Christ's sacrifice. Two parties are divided due to the fault of one of those parties. To bridge this divide and to heal the wounds of division, the party in the wrong must make amends for the wrong that has been done. At least that's the normal way of going about it. I know in these days of emotional manipulation and gaslighting that inevitably you have some character over here who has actually done wrong, who tries to make the one who has been wronged feel like they are the ones who need to make amends. But that's not the way it ought to be. The one who is wronged should make amends to the one, uh, the one who was in the wrong should make amends to the one who was wronged. Okay? I hope all that's clear. Uh, sometimes saying sorry doesn't cut it. Because there are emotional and material consequences for what has been done. The party in the wrong must do something that meaningfully shows that they are sorry. But more seriously, they must face the consequences and pay the price for the damage they have done. By so doing... The two that were divided should, at least in theory, be brought back into unity and wholeness because the one who did the wrong has made things right with the one who received the wrong. And then there's reconciliation. Because of our rebellion against God, 
and because of God's good design for the world, which we said wasn't good enough for us, and our failure to meet God's target, we are rendered utterly incapable of accomplishing this unity, this at-one-ment ourselves. We cannot stand in the gap between God and man and bring God and man together. It doesn't matter what sacrifices you make. It doesn't matter what prayers you pray. It doesn't matter what confessions you say. It doesn't matter what penance you, you perform. It doesn't matter what absolution the priest proclaims upon you. Literally, no one can make at one minute between God and man. We try, but the good things that we do can never outweigh the bad. And they become efforts, in fact, at self-righteousness. So the prophet Isaiah actually describes the efforts of sinful people to do righteous things as filthy rags, as polluted garments. Basically, we sin in trying to escape our sins. We insult God by trying to get out of the mess we are in. As rebels against God, we have committed treason against the king of the universe. Do you see that? Because I'm sometimes not sure if we see the severity of sin, that you have committed treason against the high king of heaven. Not once, but a million times over. Again and again and again. You struggle to comprehend eternity in hell because um, you, you don't see the seriousness of your sin. You don't realize that sin is treason against the ruler of the universe. And that you've not just sinned once. You've not just sinned twice. But there have been seasons, certainly at least of your life, where the very air that you live and breathe is sinful. And imagine if as in days of old, the death penalty was what was given for treason. Am I right? Imagine if the death penalty was given for every time you committed against treason, treason against God. One, two, you can't count the number of times you have rebelled against Him. Now can you begin to see perhaps the vastness of eternity and the horror of hell? how serious your sin is as an affront to God, but how damaging it is. If, if, some of you may be struggling to, to picture God in that way. But what about the world that God gave us? The horrors we've inflicted upon it, upon our, 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 our fellow man. Can we not begin to sort of wrap our heads around that? What is our hope? We can't endure the punishment that God has, that we deserve. So a substitute has to be made. And the Old Testament shows us, and the text that we, we've read shows us that again, that sacrifices are made year after year. Verse 1, by the same sacrifices continually offered every year. Substitutes were made. The Jews had a day of atonement on which they confessed sin and they sacrificed the best and purest of their lambs as a substitute. The New Testament, though, shows us that Jesus became the once and for all sacrifice, the ultimate atoning lamb. His cousin John the Baptist said, There, see, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we read it in the text. Verse 10, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Bible teaches us that the eternal Son of God became sinless, though tempted man in Jesus the Christ. Why? To represent us. We couldn't represent ourselves. To be a substitute for us. 
during His three-year ministry, this Jesus commanded people to turn away from their sins, to follow God. He condemned those who refused to do so, but He repeatedly said that all were welcome to come to Him. The all-pervading message of the Gospel is that Christ lovingly died an exemplary, selfless death in perfect, once-for-all sacrifice on a cross, thus satisfying the righteous justice of God by substitutionally enduring what rebellious mankind deserved, washing away our sin and delivering sinners from the penalty and power of sin. By purposefully dying on the cross, Jesus definitely accomplished all that He actually intended to achieve, particularly the salvation of His people that is then applied to them upon their repentance and faith. Isaiah prophesied, He was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. He was punished for our peace. And we are healed by His wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've turned to our own way. But the Lord has punished Him for the iniquity of us all. That's why we say, in Christ alone. That's why we say, on, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Your self-righteousness will not save you. Nor will your self-loathing. Oh, such a sinner. <sighs> just torn up inside because I've, just, I've done wrong again. Oh, No. Pick yourself up and look to Jesus. The salvation purchased by the atoning work of Christ is applied only to those who repent and believe. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Salvation is of the Lord, and it's enjoyed only by those who trust in Him. The Scriptures tell that to us very clearly. There's no getting around it. So that's actually easily resolvable. Repent and believe. Trust in Jesus. If you do not turn to Jesus, He's saying this is the way of salvation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. If you don't turn to Jesus, you're like the person who when these walls are on fire and the roof is on fire and you know, that's the fire exit, but you're trying to get out these windows or this door or trying to climb over the walls or just trying to ride out the fire. The fire exit's there. Run. Oh, but I, I really prefer the window. Or that, that's a fire exit, isn't it? I think I'll go that way. It looks easier. It looks closer to me. And then you open that door and that whole thing is corroded with fire and the door falls on you. One way. And it is loving and compassionate of God to tell us there's one way. Because if He's told us there's one way, we know we can go there and find a way of escape. So, so, so Jesus it has already made a sacrifice for us. And that's all that's needed for your salvation. He, God doesn't need your sacrifices. Again, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired. But Jesus' sacrifice was offered once and for all. Christ's sacrifice does not mean you can live a life without God and His people, though. Rather... It gathers you to God and His people for sacrifices of praise. I'll say that again. Christ's sacrifice does not mean that you can live a life without God and His people. It gathers you to God and His people for sacrifices of praise. We have a problem. Individualism versus congregationalism. The attitude of the man I, I, in a story that I shared at the beginning who says, I can, just, I can just walk out, I can just leave. It's like a person hopping off of the bus. It's that easy. Walking out of the, the cinema if I don't like the show. Um, we're a body. We belong to each other. We're gathered. We're congregated. If body parts start falling off, there's something wrong. And it hurts. 
And this isn't like those games you play as children where you're fighting and doing all sorts of crazy stuff and the rules are made up as you go along and you know, oh, I got your arm, your arm's not there, oops, it's regenerated, you know, robot arm. It's not like that. It hurts, it leaves a mark. Similarly, there's something really off about body parts that are just hanging out on their own, trying to have some autonomous existence. You don't see ears walking down the pathway. That would be weird. I mean, if you go to an art school or something and they have some sort of in installation, you might see some interesting things. I did once. But it was bizarre, and I didn't know what was going on. There's this person dressed as an ear walking around. So that ear needs something that it can be attached to. That hand needs to be a part of an arm. You know, that foot has to be attached to an ankle. And the whole knit together as a body. Our society is grotesquely individualistic. We need to correct that by congregating. Similarly, our, our society is, is a consumerist society. We are at the heart of consumerism here in Woodgreen. I mean, literally, that building there is a shopping mall. Shopping malls are great, except when they become all-encompassing, and that becomes your life, and, and, and you live for what you consume. But that's how some people treat church. That's how some people treat the body and bride of Christ. Friends, instead of, instead of consumerism, can we have deep co-passion? Co compassion? Suffering together, feeling together, worshiping together. Well, that's exactly where this passage leads. Some people are saying, oh, my hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I don't need the church. They, they haven't read the whole, the whole chapter. Because literally, he says, since we have, verse 19, confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and it's definitely not me, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Uh, who's our great high priest? Jesus. He's our great high priest. He's also our sacrifice. And He's done it all for us. Why? So that we can draw near. To who? We can draw near to God. But not only to God, because someone says, oh, I have my own relationship with God. I, I, um, you know, I, I have, I have a, a vibrant prayer life. And we just, you know, He's my friend. And we have great times together. Okay, but, but are you accountable to any brothers or sisters? Are you worshiping to I oh, just do my own thing. Nature is my church. Friends, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Not naming names. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So draw near. Not for sacrifices for sin. No, Jesus has paid it all. All to Him I owe. Indeed. Jesus paid it all. There is no longer any offering for sin, as Hebrews 10.18 says. But because all to Him I owe, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name, doing good and sharing what we have. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16. Not sacrifices for sin, but sacrifices of praise. In the Roman Catholic system, um, the normal means of seeking forgiveness, some of you come from that background, some of you are still in that background, 
The normal means of seeking forgiveness from God involved confession of sin, and it involves confession of sin to a priest. Also penance, which is the task of sacrificial charity or self-harming punishment, if you're a part of one of those groups, um, set by the priest. Also absolution, the priestly declaration of forgiveness. Historically, it doesn't quite take the same format now, but it's still there. Um, to free a family member or one's future self from suffering before going to heaven, a place called purgatory that is nowhere found in the Bible. You could purchase a certificate called an indulgence for money or fulfilling some form of penance. As you perform this penance, you would pray to Mary, to the saints. These played a very important and continue in some ways to play an important part in the Roman Catholic understanding of salvation. Mary in particular is often regarded as a co-redemptrix or a mediatrix. That is, she helps save humanity and appeals to God on behalf of sinners for forgiveness. Now the Bible says I can go to God in Jesus, Christ alone. But what am I to do when someone says, well, if you go to Mary, she's probably the best place to go to. She can then talk to Jesus and Jesus can talk to the Father. Remember where we began with reason, Scripture alone, the authority of Scripture. I know you've been misled. I know you've heard other things, but you've not heard it from the Bible. The Reformers found that the actual teaching of the New Testament was very different. All who have a genuine faith in Christ are priests. You are a priest if you are trusting in Jesus. Someone asks me what I do, I tell them I'm a pastor. They say, is that like a priest or something? My answer, or something. Um, um, I am a priest. And the other people in my church are priests. It's a whole church of priests. Oh? You're all single? No, I'm married. Some of them are too. Some of them want to be. And that's cool. Some of them are happy being single. That's cool too. We, we, we're priests. Not because of some sort of special spirituality. Not because of our marital status. Not because of anything that we have thought, said, or done. We are priests because of Jesus and who He is and what He has done. And those are, those are my barbershop chair conversations. It gets deep really quick. Um, but, um, you know, I'm not going to hide who I am in Christ. Nor should you. You might not have the natural end when someone asks, what do you do? Oh, I'm a, I'm a pastor. That might not be your answer. But... You are in Christ. You're a priest. And not only are you priests, you're a priest under Jesus, the great high priest. And Jesus sacrificed Himself once to bring you to God so you have immediate access to Him. And you have access to Him directly through prayer. And together, as we gather, we, we enjoy all of that, the blessings and benefits of that. But the Lord's Supper, for example, is not a sacrifice. It's, I know some people call it a sacrifice, but it's, well, if it's a sacrifice, it is a sacrifice of praise. We're worshiping Jesus and we're remembering Jesus through the bread and the blood, but it's not for your sins, which I know they've told you it is sometimes for some of you. It's not. Jesus died once and for all, the price is paid. Christ sacrificed himself once for all eternity. He's the only mediator between God and us. Trust in Jesus Christ alone. And you'll find that's quite freeing. That's quite liberating. It revolutionizes the life of the Christian. We can confidently approach God. You can approach God yourself on the merits of Jesus' righteousness. Not yours. I'm a sinner. Jesus is my Savior. He understands me in my weakness. He understands me in my temptation. Although He is without sin, He, he understands me in my sin. And He goes to the Father and says, forgive Him. 
And what else did Jesus say? On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. He said, it is, he did not say, I am finished. Right? He did not say, I am finished. He said, into your hands I commit my spirit. The crucified Christ would become the risen Christ three days later. And the risen Christ would become the ascended Christ. Now the interceding Christ, praying for you. Though hanging on the cross, Jesus still had things to do and teach on the other side of the grave. And He continues to work in you and me by the Holy Spirit through the Word. Jesus did not say, they are finished. Talking about the people who were crucifying Him. They're finished. No. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Some of them would continue to persecute His people, but some of them would go on to become His people. Radically transformed by saving encounters with the risen Christ or hearing the gospel shared by His disciples. The forgiveness He prayed for while on the cross He still offers to you today. If you will receive it. Jesus did not say to His disciples then, you are finished. Guys, you've just abandoned me. I'm done with you. You're finished. No. He said you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. His purpose with us even today is not simply to work for us or even to work in us, but it is to work through us for the glory of God in the preaching of the gospel, the growth of the church, the good of our neighbors. That's why we're on mission always. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, He didn't say, I am finished. He didn't say, they are finished. He didn't say, you are finished. Jesus said, it is finished. The price for your sins has been paid. Justice has been satisfied. Eternal joy has been secured. Amen.